suspect listeners again coming to you live from my kitchen i've actually been sitting in here like 20 minutes because my fucking neighbor's dog will literally not shut up like i am not sure if they're not home or what the issue is but i've just been sitting here like waiting for him to stop barking and i don't know if they have their window open or what so if you guys hear a dog bark at any time it's my upstairs neighbors it's their fault We don't fuck with him for that. Why is he barking? He's been barking for like two hours too. It's not even like this just started happening and I'm being like easily agitated. Like literally he's been barking for like two hours off and on and I just, I don't know why. I think he hears stuff outside and I am assuming they're just not home. But Jesus, close your window. Like fuck. Um, But anyways, hi guys. Welcome back to another episode. Like I said, coming to you um, live from my kitchen with a joint in my hand, three pairs of socks on, and a heater on. Did you guys hear the dog? Do you hear him? I don't know if you guys can hear that. I tried to record it for like a Snapchat video and then like you couldn't hear it. So I don't know if you guys will be able to hear it. But anyway, yeah, I have a little heater on me sitting in my kitchen trying to get away from the fucking dog barking. But here we are. We are back for another episode Um, It's Saturday, so I've just been doing all of my recording on, like, the weekends since I told you guys I've been, like, working a lot of overtime, so hold on, let me hit this drive. So anyway, yeah, we're back. Thanksgiving is coming up. I hope all of you have, I don't know, your menus ready, (laughs) I guess, for that day. Um, I don't yet. I actually really need to go to the fucking store probably before then. Ugh, fuck. I probably need to go, like, Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm like a last minute like Thanksgiving person every year but anyway yeah I hope you guys have your menus ready and um I've been seeing people go back and forth on social media about green bean casserole and I'm here to set the record straight I love green bean casserole I support it (laughs) I will definitely be making it at least for myself I don't know if anybody else will eat it but I'm gonna eat it so I'm excited for that and yeah that's what we're looking forward to is Thanksgiving this week. So hope you guys are being mindful of what you're thankful for. Maybe what you learned this year. I feel like that's a good thing to like think about on Thanksgiving as the year is like coming to an end. Like in what ways did I grow this year and what new things did I, what new things did I learn? Um, what new characteristics did I see grow for myself? You know, I don't know all that shit. You guys know what I mean, but yeah. I'm excited to be off, obviously, on Thursday and have a lot of yummy food. Definitely take some naps, you know what I mean? Catch some football Friday, too. I have to work on Friday, but I'm definitely still going to catch football on Friday. So, yeah, excited for that. I hope you guys are excited to see your family, spend some time there. Definitely soak all that in. I wish I was going to be able to see my family, my mom and dad and stuff for Thanksgiving, but not this year. So, Yeah, you guys just really indulge in that and really enjoy that family time. I feel like family love is, like, just a really safe love. Like, even though they do shit that, like, bothers you and annoys the fuck out of you and, like, you know, all that shit. Like, I still feel like that's a really safe love, you know, that you're, like, almost safe to, like, you know, maybe just, like, be yourself. I don't know. Maybe not always. Not for every scenario, but at least in my family. So I definitely am going to you know, miss being around that love this year, but I'm just going to have a really chill day myself, enjoy the day off, 
like I said, I have to go back to work on Friday. So, yeah, hopefully you guys listening have Friday off. I hope you do. Oh, shit. Sorry, I just hit my mic. But, yeah, I hope most of you listening have Friday off so you can just really have, like, a long weekend. Maybe spend it with your family. Spend half of it with your family, maybe. <laughs> Whatever is good for you. Oh, my God. I wanted to tell you guys, I came up with the funniest Christmas idea for my family this year, right? So, so normally I just get them like, I mean, I'm still going to do this, but I get them like, you know, all separate gifts that they will enjoy, like for their, their own like personal sake. But this year I came up with the funniest fucking idea. And you guys can take this if you want. If you're like, I'm like the jokester in my family. Like I've always been like the, like, why did I just say that? Like almost so weird. I've always been like the sarcastic, like jokey kind of person in my family like I'll get people like a funny card or I'm not the one that's like afraid to make like the fucked up joke or just like the like you know whatever so I was thinking this year for my family like my mom my dad my grandparents my brother and his sister um probably my like younger siblings too um I'm gonna get them hold on let me hit this again ah this is so funny I'm going to get everybody in my family a pair of socks with my face on it. But it's not going to be like not the same picture on like every pair of socks. Like I'm not just going to be like bland and be like, okay, like here you go. Like everyone gets a picture of me smiling on their socks. Like, no, I'm going to take it a step further and I'm going to do like a funny picture on all of them. So like (laughs) this is so funny. But like for my dad's, for example, I have this picture on my phone from like, I don't know, it was like two or three months ago um, where I was like really hungover the next morning, like after like having a couple of drinks the night before. So I like woke up the next morning and I like threw up because I was hungover and I like took a picture of it and like sent it to Rachel like randomly because I just sent her like everything I'm doing in my life. So I sent like a picture of it to her. And so I still have the picture on my phone. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my dad's socks like just because that's so funny and random. And then I have this picture on my phone from where like I was um, doing like my smile direct stuff like where I was like you have to like put this like clear retainer basically in your mouth that like stretches your gums out. Oops, sorry, I hit my mic again. Um, anyway, you have to like put this clear retainer in your mouth to where it like stretches your gums out. So like you can take a picture of your teeth like essentially to send back to them. So I have this picture on my phone from where I had that retainer in my mouth and my mouth is like all the way open, gums wide open, gums ablazing. <laughs> um, and I think I'm going to put that on like my mom's or my brother's or something. But yeah, anyways, if you don't know me, like I take like a lot of random pictures of myself because I like all of my girlfriends and I, we like, you know, send pictures of each other all day, like, ugh, like whatever our mood is. So I have a lot of funny pictures on my phone where I'm just like doing random shit and then I like send it to my girlfriends. So I'm going <laughs> to gonna take some of those pictures and like put it on like a sock for like socks a pair of socks for everyone in my family and send it to them like oh my gosh it's gonna be so funny like it's gonna be so funny I don't even care if they wear them or not I just think that's such a funny concept but I am gonna like try and get all of them to like send me a picture of them wearing them because I think it would be funny like and I'll show it to you guys of like all of them wearing like you know like sorry can't be there but they're in spirit and send them all a pair of socks along with an additional Christmas present like I'm not just gonna be corny but that is so funny I'll keep you guys posted I started like customizing them the other day and saving them to the Amazon basket so that I can just like go in and like pick sizes you know 
But yeah, I'll keep you guys posted. I thought that was so funny. I came up with that. I was like sitting on my bed and like watching TV and like, you know, just adding different shit to my Amazon list for Christmas. And then I thought of that and I was like, oh my gosh, that's genius. Let me get on there right now (laughs) and started customizing all them. So yeah, I'll keep you guys updated. I'll definitely post pictures. I think it's going to be so funny and I'm so excited to like do it for all of them. And I don't know if I don't think any of them even actually listen to my podcast. I think I said that last week, but the only person who might listen to my podcast is my sister-in-law. So Megan, if you're listening, don't tell anyone. (laughs) Just text me and we'll talk about this, (laughs) but do not tell anyone. But yeah, I don't think anybody else listens, but it's going to be so funny. So again, keep you guys updated. But if anybody wants to use the idea, go ahead. It's not mine. I mean, it is my idea, but it's not mine to keep. I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm sharing it with you guys because I think that's just like a funny thing to do. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, another thing that happened this week that I want to tell you guys about. Listen, I'm going to clear my throat for this one. Um, I have. Okay, let me start somewhere else. So I live obviously like in a building with like multiple residents so like probably like a year ago like the residents of my building I'm cool with pretty much everyone in my building like they're all pretty young like we are like chill you know professionals whatever so anyway probably about like a year ago some of the residents in my building were like being petty and they started leaving like notes out (laughs) for the other residents to see like specifically like saying shit about like I don't know they would just like talk shit like I have like a whole list of examples like somebody was saying that it smells weird in the building and it was like a call out because somebody's apartment like I guess that didn't smell too great and it was making the building smell weird um somebody in the fucking building literally like wrote on a piece of paper like unit seven Karen alert and so like just like shit like that like they do stuff like that probably starting about a year ago so they've done multiple things like that apparently like at some point we have like a laundry room in our building where we do our laundry and I guess like somebody in the building like stole somebody else's like black jeans like out of the washer dryer I'm not really sure so like the person's jeans who got stolen left like this entire like two-page fucking note like on the laundry room door and was like to whoever stole my jeans like you're fucked up and like this whole long thing like I literally posted this all on my Twitter because it was like just happening so much like it was just back to back like there was a new note every time we walked somewhere um oh and then another one like these people in the laundry room again the laundry room is like the fucking ring I guess I don't know the laundry room they got beef in the laundry room So another one was um, in the laundry room was somebody else's shit got stolen, I guess. I don't really know. Or no, like I think what happened was they left their stuff in the washer and like somebody else came in to like use the washer and the person like hadn't been in there to like move their stuff to the dryer and the person like didn't feel like waiting. So they just like took all their wet clothes and like dumped them on the table basically. So the wet clothes, the owner of the wet clothes, like, comes back in and, like, sees it and then, like, leaves a note and is, like, bitch, like, don't touch my shit or something like that. Like, I'll fuck you up. Like, it was, like, this whole thing, right? So, anyway, it's, like, the battle of the notes in the fucking building. I don't know. The game of notes instead of the Game of Thrones. Like, insane. So, whatever. So, anyway, this Karen note specifically was just, like, so funny to me because... It stayed up in the building 
for like a month like nobody took it down they posted it on the bulletin board like in the lobby when you first walk into the building so like anytime anybody's coming in and out like they can see it and it was like on a black piece of paper that was in the shape of a heart and written in like I think it was like white chalk or some shit like that so it was like bold you know what I mean it wasn't just like scribbled on a little piece of notebook paper and a thin pen so they leave it up for like three or four weeks and this lady like I mean I imagine it's her apartment number you know like she comes in and out and like sees it and like I don't know I can't even imagine how she felt when she saw that right so I just thought it was so funny that somebody in my building did that because um I mean obviously like that's not a nice thing to do but it was funny because I know everybody in my building for the most part And we're all, like, young professionals, cool. Like, nobody messes with anyone. Like, there's never really been any drama that, like, super pops off, you know? So I was just like, okay, for somebody to leave that, no. And I knew that somebody had just moved in, like, the week before. I didn't know what apartment, but that somebody had just moved in. So I was like, okay, well, for somebody to write this note, like, I feel like they may have had, like, some sort of, like, interaction with her. And... (laughs) they're just like trying to give everybody a heads up type thing like I don't know I feel like they she really would have had to like piss them off for them to leave a fucking note on the bulletin board downstairs for all of the residents to see you know so I didn't know who lived in the unit seven or whatever and oh oh my god the evolution of the fucking Karen note so whatever I like go about my business just like took a picture of it notated it thought that that was funny and then like a couple days later um the building like management I guess like basically like reposted like a bunch of signs basically saying like okay like no smoking in the building but like I don't know nobody really listens to that like we live in Denver you know what I mean like everyone's like young like all professionals I'm saying like we're all about our shit but like even the landlords and shit like that we that own like our units and stuff like all smoke and shit whatever so nobody really pays attention to that but then they like posted it and like highlighted it which means somebody knew that moved into the building like probably called them and like notated on that whatever so again didn't really pay attention to it nothing's really come from it and that was like seven or eight months ago so the other day (laughs) you guys it's been snowing in Colorado I'm fucking walking home I have a bag full of fucking groceries right I just got I've been working 12 hour shifts like I told you guys so it's like 7 30 p.m i'm coming home with a bag full of heavy groceries walking it's fucking snowing ice everywhere fucking freezing outside and i'm walking like back up to my building and this lady that i've never seen before in my life like literally never seen her before she was like almost kind of looked like me too <laughs> she almost looked like she could be like my aunt or something like blonde like same height as me whatever and so i'm like walking back in And I see her and she's like getting like walking into my building. So I'm like probably like five feet away from her. And I was like, hey, I was like, I'm coming in behind you. Like, please hold the door. Like bags full of groceries, like I mentioned. And she like does for a second and then she like stops and like puts her hand up. And she's like, wait, what apartment are you in? And I I was like, girl, move (laughs) like and walked past her. But I was like so appalled because like. Here's the thing, like, there is, like, a lot of, like, I don't know what the political correct term to use for it. I guess, like, houseless people, I would say, in Colorado. And so I would understand, like, not even then because, like, I don't know. I don't even know. It pissed me off is my point, right? So it pissed me the fuck off. I literally, like, 
just didn't want to react to it in that moment because I just worked 12 hours bag full of groceries it's fucking 18 degrees outside so I just like came back in like didn't say like too much I was like girl move and like went back inside my apartment essentially just like walked past her because I was like get the fuck out of here I've lived here like for like a couple years you know so then I like go back inside I just go back to my business and then I was talking to someone about it and they were like what she did what and then like that in my brain is like what cued for me to be like you know what yeah oh shit I think I just broke the pen I was holding no I didn't um anyway that's like what hit my brain to be like yeah actually you know right you're right that's like really weird that she did that and then like I thought about it and like seven or eight months ago I had the same thing happen to me by like someone else in the building but I think it was the same person but I just like don't remember it because it was like such a brief interaction and I don't know it was like long ago I might have had a couple glasses of wine you know what I mean I don't know so I didn't remember like who it was but then it happened to me again the other night and I was so fucking offended by it because like again bag full of groceries I'm dressed like pretty nicely like walking into the building like it just like really pissed me off it made me like you know those videos you like see on Twitter where like people are like Karens are doing that to like people in the neighborhoods it was just like why do people do that like First of all, bitch, you are not the fucking police. And even if you were, I don't give a fuck. Like, because I fucking live here. But two, you are not a building manager. You don't own a fucking building. Like, in you don't own a unit in the building. Like, oh my God, it made me so mad. And then the more I thought about it, the more and more mad I got. And I was just like, who was this bitch? Like, I've never even seen her before, you know? So then I text my neighbor, who I'm like pretty good friends with. Again, pretty cool with everyone in the building. And I texted my neighbor and I was like, because I was thinking about the Karen note and I was thinking about I've never seen that lady like but she like went up towards where unit seven where Karen would live you know so anyway so then I text my neighbor and I was like hey I was like do you know by chance who lives in unit seven and she was like yeah she was like but I don't really like know her she was like "Uh, but I do know who lives there and she was like is everything okay So I text my neighbor like this entire story. I was like, okay. I was like, this is what happened. I was like, it really pissed me off. I was like, you know, and like anyone who knows me is like, I will react to people who want a reaction. I'm not afraid. I am not afraid to react to you. I don't care about that. I just didn't want to. I was tired. I wanted to go back inside. It's fucking cold. And so I like explain all this to my neighbor and um, then like tell my neighbor what she looks like. And my neighbor was like, oh, yep, that's her. She was like, definitely her. And then my neighbor validated me and was like, she's definitely like let the door close my face a couple times, but she knows I live here. So she hasn't done that precisely to me per se. But yeah, anyway, figured out who lived in unit seven and whoever left that note in my building about Karen in unit seven was just trying to look out for the residents. So shout out to you. I appreciate you for that probably don't listen to this podcast but just putting that onto the universe too it's fuck karen from unit seven because that bitch really pissed me off like really just like i was in a good mood after working 12 hours i was just trying to get home and eat dinner bro i hadn't eaten all day and then she fucking put her hand up and like i said i think she did that to me before like seven or eight months ago so here's the real problem karen better not do that again like or we are gonna have to have a real quick heart to heart bless her heart and get this out and be like girl I am so sorry but you are not the fucking police you're not the you're the building managers you are nobody to this building to be doing that like 
especially because it's a lot of younger people that live here, like I said. So there's people coming in all the time, in and out. Like I've held the door open for people that I've never fucking seen before and then probably never saw them again after that night. And they weren't doing anything malicious. They just know someone in this building. Like, oh my gosh. But yeah, I had to tell you guys that story. I was like, oh my gosh. Like literally... Karen wants me to react to her <laughs> like oh that's so crazy but yeah the evolution of the Karen oh I finally got to fucking meet her and yeah we don't claim her we don't claim her no fuck that I just thought you guys would find that was funny and I just like really hope I don't run into her again she doesn't really seem like she's like in and out too much which is probably why I haven't seen her and that note was left like literally like eight months ago um but I hope I don't see her again because I damned I'm not gonna be stopped from walking into my building especially with the fucking bags of groceries like get the fuck out of here I'm not dealing with that I don't do that to people like unless somebody's doing like some weird sketchy shit like you shouldn't do that and even then like as a woman you should not fucking do that like you just don't need to be involving yourself in any kind of weird shit like I think that's the problem with people that annoys me and like the biggest thing that I try to express is like you cannot just do and say anything to anyone like you have no idea how anybody's gonna react to that at any point like it's really smart not to interject yourself into situations by doing shit like that like thankfully for me I was just trying to get home but what if I was crazy what if I really just like snapped you know what I mean for her doing that like what if I really did just snap I mean I'm not going to but you guys know what I mean like just be careful what you guys say and do to people you don't know how they're gonna react like and don't put yourself in like unnecessary situations just because you want to be like nosy or like, you know, I don't fucking know. Think that you're the building manager or owner. Girl, get out of here. Pay your rent and worry about you, sis. Pay your rent and worry about you. That's the advice that I have for you. Like, <sighs> but yeah, that you guys would find that interesting. Oh my gosh. So really quick before we actually jump into the case today, yes, it is a case episode. I know you guys probably miss these. They are a little longer. Um, but before we do that, I just want to talk about, um, well, first I just want to thank you guys for everyone that's listening, everyone that tunes in, everyone that shares, leaves a review, um, listens to the ads, you know what I mean? I really appreciate you guys because that really helps generate like income for the podcast. And I appreciate you guys. Like I want this podcast to be like my business, you know what I mean? One day. So, um, I really appreciate all of you that really do that. And I just wanted to announce that, um, for the month of December, I'm going to take all the income that generates from the podcast and we're going to either donate it or you guys know that there's specific like charities that during Christmas time they allow you to purchase presents directly for the child so like if a kid requests something um, they'll specifically put it on their website and like you know if it's like clothes tell you what size if it's like a toy like whatever so um, a really cool thing that I thought to do would just be take to take the money that was generated from the podcast and really just place that towards either a family or maybe a child specifically that's in need for the holidays. I think that it's really important, you know, for us to recognize that maybe not everybody even listening to this podcast has the privileges of like waking up and having multiple presents on Christmas morning or being able to provide that for your children. Not everybody is able to do that. Not everybody is able to afford to have a nice meal on Christmas like so many of us are fortunate to do. 
So I really do believe that it is important that if we're able to, to really give back and try to help out in whatever way that we can in our communities or in other communities that maybe your heart has a passion for, however that looks like for you. I'm not here how to tell you how to give back, um, but just maybe some different ways that you can implement doing that, especially during the holiday time. So um, let me pull this website up, but I found this really cool website um, that, you know, you guys are able to, if you want, of course, to donate to the podcast, there will be links in the show notes if you'd like to donate to the podcast um, for December so that you can be part of the donation that I'll be doing. Or if you want to specifically just go to the website that I've been looking at, I'm also going to link that too. If you'd like to specifically pick out a toy or maybe some clothes or bedding for the children, you're able to do that as well. So let me pull this back up so I can give you guys the website and maybe redo their little mission statement that they have. Hold on. Okay, so this is a charity that's specifically in the San Francisco Bay Area. I just found this the other day and I really liked that they were like specifically putting what the kids want on the website. So you guys are, of course, welcome to do your own research, find your own, go to this one specifically. Um, I'm probably going to be donating to a couple donate or a couple charities over the next month for specifically Christmas. Um, So if you want to donate to the podcast, um, those funds that you donate would probably go multiple places, just so you guys know, probably not just one organization. So anyway, this one is called My Two Front Teeth. And it says, their mission statement, My Two Front Teeth has merged with the Family Giving Tree, a Bay Area nonprofit organization dedicated to fulfilling the holiday gift wishes of local underprivileged children. We realized that by combining our resources, talent, and expertise, we would be able to reach even more needy children during the holiday season. In doing so, both of us have also joined the Family Giving Trees Board of Directors so that we continue the important work of caring for those who are less fortunate in our communities. For those of you who have generously donated to My Two Front Teeth in the past, we thank you for your kindness and strongly encourage you to join us in supporting the Family Giving Tree. So that's their homepage, and then you click over to the Family Giving Tree, and you're able to find specific things that children are asking for, and, you know, you can purchase specific things for them for their needs, um, specific to women, or not women, I'm sorry, specific to little girls, little boys, babies, they have baby toys on there, all kinds of stuff, so... I just thought it was kind of cool when I found it the other day, and it's definitely one that I'm probably going to be doing. Um, So again, I'm going to do that and probably find a couple more, and I'll let you guys know over the next couple of weeks, over the next couple episodes, which ones that I do find that the, you know, the income from the podcast over the next month generates will go towards. But again, I really appreciate everyone who listens, everyone who has donated to the podcast or been a monthly supporter. That's also something else that you're able to do. Um, it enables me to be able to do things like this and I'm excited because I just really want to give back and you know we talk about all these horrible things that happen to these you know innocent people on the podcast and you know this is just at least a small way to give back to a community and I do think it's important so again if you're interested in doing that you can check out my two front teeth.com and you can check out that organization that charity Google some if you want to. Google definitely will have plenty of charities for you to donate to during the holiday times or any charity of your own. It doesn't have to be specific to the holidays, but I just, you know, anything that we can do 
anything that we can do. I remember being younger and seeing like um, something in my community that they did. I think it was like a shop with a cop or some shit like that. But they took like, you know, the underprivileged kids to like Walmart and Target and let them pick out like toys and clothes that they wanted. And I don't know. I just thought that was like really sweet to see one time. So anything like that, I think is so important to really help out if you can. That's just my piece. I don't know. We love the kids. There's also a lot of charities and organizations that help have families have food at Christmas time and around holiday season and not just the holiday season, just in general. So you could definitely find some of those and I will too, to share over the next few episodes. Okay, so the case that I have for you guys before, if you've listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, you might have heard this one before, but I had originally saved this to do in October because it was just like really crazy and I was like just looking for really crazy stuff in October, but uh, I didn't get to do it, but we saved it. So we're going to go ahead and knock it out today. It's pretty crazy. Um, Lots of trigger warnings. I'll stop you now um, for, I mean, a multitude of things. So just don't listen if you are easily frightened or sick to the stomach I guess is the best way to put that but we're gonna go ahead and jump into it so we're gonna be talking about Robert Berdella today and he's also known as he's also known as the Kansas City Butcher or the Collector for any of you maybe that have heard of him so just a little background on Robert Berdella Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. was an American serial killer who kidnapped raped tortured and murdered at least six young men after having forced his victims to endure periods of up to six weeks of captivity. His crimes took place in Kansas City, Missouri between 1984 and 1987. So Berdella describing his murders as being some of my darkest fantasies becoming my reality. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for first-degree murder of one of for first-degree murder of one of his victims, Larry Pearson, in August 1988, and would later plead guilty to one further charge of first-degree murder and four charges of second-degree murder in December 1988. He died of a heart attack while incarcerated at the Missouri State Penitentiary in October 1992. He eventually becomes known as the Kansas City Butcher due to his practice of dissecting his victims' bodies, which he would then dispose of in garbage bags, and the collector due to both the movie, which he stated was the basis of the fantasies behind his MO of his crimes, and much of the evidence subsequently uncovered by investigators. So just a little tea on what we're going to be getting into. If any of that made you easy, uneasy, it's probably best to click off now because we're going to be going into a little bit more detail here about Robert. Okay, so Robert Berdella was born on January 31st, 1949 in Suahoga Falls, Ohio. I probably did not say that correctly, but yeah, Ohio. He was the first of two sons born to Robert Andrew Berdella Sr., a die setter for the Ford, a die setter for the Ford Motor Company, and Mary Louise Berdella. Berdella's father was a devout Roman Catholic of Italian descent. The family regularly attended mass, and both sons attended religious education courses. 
So as a child, Robert was intelligent, but a loner who rarely played outside even, and seldom had friends ever come over to hang out. He had a speech impediment, and he wore thick glasses from the age of five because he was severely nearsighted. He was also diagnosed with high blood pressure, for which he took several medications. So Robert was pretty unathletic, whereas his brother, Daniel, who was seven years Robert's junior, displayed a love for various sports from a very early age. As Robert's father valued sports and physical education, he he viewed his older son's lack of interest in sports as a sign of failure, and he often compared him unfavorably with his younger brother. So occasionally, Robert's father physically and emotionally abused his children, and he beat them with a leather strap. Robert performed pretty well academically, though teachers often found him pretty difficult to teach, in part due both to his aloofness and his being the recipient of bullying by other students. Because of this, he seldom socialized with his peers at all. When he reached puberty, he discovered that he was homosexual. Initially, he kept this fact a closed guarded secret, and he did not become open about his sexuality for several years. Nonetheless, in his early teens, he did briefly have a girlfriend. So by his mid-teens, Robert had begun to display a degree of self-confidence, which would often manifest itself via his attitude to other individuals in which he would exert a somewhat rude and condescending attitude, particularly toward women. He learned about cooking and art and developed showmanship. On Christmas Day 1965, the Burdella family drove to Canton, Ohio to visit relatives. That evening, Robert's father had a heart attack at the age of 39. Two days later, Robert returned back home by himself. When he arrived home, his family told him that his father had died. Robert sought solace in his religion and then later read about many faiths, but became cynical about all religion. In 1965, Robert saw the film adaptation of the John Fowles novel, The Collector. The plot of the film revolves around a disturbed man who walks and stalks and then abducts a young woman whom he finds attractive, holding her captive in his windowless stone basement and viewing her as little more than an attractive specimen. After several weeks, the woman dies of an illness, despite her captor's efforts to keep her alive. Robert later stated this movie had formed a lasting impression on him. And I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, but they've obviously remade it since then, too, as well. But what? Like, how could this movie leave an impression on you? Like, actually, like, inspire you? What? No, sir. Like, already red flags all over. Fucking Robert, no. So shortly after the death of his father, Robert's mother gets remarried. This act was met with resentment by her older son, who viewed the move as a form of betrayal against his father. As a result, Robert became increasingly withdrawn and further immersed himself in the solitary activities he had participated in since childhood, such as painting, collecting coins and stamps, and writing to foreign pen pals. Robert would later claim that his hobby of writing to pen pals in countries such as Vietnam and Burma 
and the fact that these pen pals would send him stamps for his collection and photographs of mythical and historical icons, ancient cultures, and architecture would lead to his developing an avid interest in primitive art, photographs, and antiques. From approximately 1965, he would begin avidly collecting these artifacts. This practice would later inspire him to open his own antiques business in 1982. So he can be nice to his pen pals, but he can't be nice to women. Oh, oh my God, it's sickening. (laughs) So in the summer of 1967, Berdella Robert, sorry, they have his last name in here. I've just been saying Robert. In the summer of 1967, Robert graduated from, again, I can't say it, Cuyahoga Falls High School. Throughout his studies in high school, he had earned such excellent grades and displayed such potential that in 1966, one teacher had placed him in an independent study program. Shortly after graduation, Robert relocates to Kansas City. There, he enrolls in the Kansas City Art Institute, KCAI, with aspirations of becoming a college professor. In his first year at the KCAI, Robert was considered an attentive and talented student, although by his second year, Robert became vocally anti-authoritarian. He also became acquainted with a clique of students who supplied him with drugs, which he then sold to other students at a profit. In addition, he started to abuse alcohol. He also engaged in acts of animal torture on at least two occasions, and during one of these instances, He decapitated a duck in the presence of his peers, and on the second instance, he experimented with sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog. Like, okay, you fucking weirdo. Like, oh my god, he cut the head off of a duck. Like, and everyone was just like, oh shit. Like, what? I literally would have reported him right that second. I would have been like, what a fucking psychopath. Like, what? That's, like, extreme. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if somebody cuts a fucking animal's head off in front of you, like, that's extreme. Like, that's a problem. Oh, my God. At the age of 19, Robert was arrested for attempting to sell meth to an undercover police officer. He was released after posting a $3,000 bond, which today would be equivalent to $23,000 and would later plead guilty to the offense and was later handed a five-year suspended sentence. One month after his first arrest, Berdella and two other students were arrested for the possession of marijuana and LSD in Johnson County. On this occasion, Robert could not post bond and he spends five days in jail, although the charges that are against him and the other students are eventually dropped due to a lack of evidence. Imagine getting arrested twice in a month. (laughs) Like, what? No. Absolutely not. In 1969, Robert voluntarily withdrew from the KCAI after receiving harsh criticism from college administrators for killing and cooking a duck for the sake of art. Yeah, yeah. I would would think you'd get some harsh criticism by that, Robert. Ugh. He chose to remain in Kansas City, and in September of that year, he moved into an address within the Hyde Park District, 4315 Charlotte Street. By this stage, Robert had been openly gay for several years. He began spending much of his time with male sex workers, drug addicts, 
petty criminals, and runaways. Robert would typically befriend individuals like this and then try to help them free from their drug addictions or criminal lifestyles, although he was adamant throughout that much of the 1970s, he had no physical contact whatsoever with any of these people. So to several of his neighbors, Robert states that he almost kind of felt like a foster parent to these young people. By the early 1980s, many of his older acquaintances had ceased any kind of social relationship with Robert at all. So he was increasingly relying on these young men as a source of companionship and friendship. He would then claim to become increasingly frustrated at many of these individuals' ignorance to help his efforts to steal them away from self-destructive behavior. Despite these later claims to investigators, Robert would often engage in sexual relations with several of these individuals and would establish a degree of control over them, in part to engage in these sexual relations via methods such as loaning them money and allowing them to live rent-free at his house for periods of time. Okay, so basically, like, sorry, I just, like, was reading straight from the article because I didn't want to miss any details. So basically, he, like, is preying on specific people. You know what I mean? Like, he knows these people are young. They need help. They might not, not have a place to live. They might not have money to eat. Like, all these different scenarios that could be a thing. And he's like, oh, no, come stay with me. Like, I'll give you money. I'll let you stay with me. Like, whatever you need. It's manipulation, like, at its finest. Because see, there's, these are young people. And you're like older and weird like you're preying on a younger group of men because you're fucking sick like you're not like you're mentally ill and you're using it to your advantage like to like try and be like oh no like I'm just this nice like you know I just want to help no you don't like you want to manipulate and take advantage of these young men these young gay men like no absolutely not like don't fuck with that so oh these poor young men Like, and that's the thing, like, when you, like, obviously, like, we know times are different now, and we can't just, like, trust anyone. Like, we can't just be like, oh, well, they're older than I am. Like, it was back in the old days, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, well, they're older. They're probably more wiser. Now, you know, anybody could just be a creep. But, like, I just imagine these young men are like, oh, like, he's really, like, you know, older than we are. He's wiser. He's trying to help. He's, you know, doing all these things. This is somebody we can really trust. And that's what I'm saying. It's just manipulation at its fucking finest. Like, it's sickening. So to his neighbors, Berdella was considered a flamboyant yet helpful and civic-minded individual, despite the generally unkempt state of his property and his somewhat haughty attitude. Beginning in the late 1970s, Robert Berdella would assist in the organizational activities of the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, becoming their chairman in the early 1980s and encouraging neighborhood watch patrols. So pause really quick. This is just something that we see a lot with like people who have done stuff like this, right? You know what I mean? Like they interject themselves into like these organizations or like these circles where they can be in on what's going on, like in on the loop, like kind of how we see like people who kill someone, like almost like interject themselves like into the investigation somehow, you know, like they're helping look or they're doing this. It's like, ugh, like it's so eerie. It makes my skin crawl. Like, what? <laughs> 
So Robert remains active in the association until the mid-1980s when he relinquished his position within the organization. He also represents his neighborhood at fundraising events for local public TV station for a local public TV station, although he would disengage himself from these events by the mid-1980s. Shortly before Robert had moved into his Charlotte Street address, he began working as a short order cook in various restaurants around Kansas City, in part to help pay the lawyer fees and fines accrued from the drug arrest that he endured at the age of 19. As a means of obtaining additional income, he also sold arcane items of art and antiques that he had accrued and collected from contacts that he had established in Africa Asia, South America, and various Pacific Rim countries. He would initially operate this side business from his home. So he's got the he's got the hookup on pen pal buddies, you know? So they're sending him all this stuff, and he just starts selling it, essentially. Both Robert's career and side business gradually flourished, and by the mid-1970s, he began working as a senior cook at several renowned Kansas City restaurants also joining a local chef's association and helping establish a training program for aspiring chefs at a local community college. Simultaneously, as his own business began to grow, he began to devote more of his attention to his own business as opposed to his work as a chef. By 1981, he had established several contractual agreements with both national and international contacts for his own antiques business. He viewed this business as his full-time job and later ceased working as a chef. So he's like, okay, antiques is popping. Like, he's like, the antiques business is rumbling. Like, okay, Robert. In 1982, Robert began renting his own booth at the Westport Flea Market. This store was named Bob's Bazaar Bazaar and primarily sold and traded primitive art, jewelry, and antiques. So although occasionally making a generous monthly profit, the income that he generates through the business was often not enough to maintain his daily expenses and to make ends meet. As a result, Robert would occasionally steal or scavenge for items to sell at his booth or take lodgers at his home as a means of gaining additional income. So this man has like three businesses. Like, okay, he's got like three businesses. He's got his antiques business. He, well, I mean, he's not a chef anymore, so never mind. And he also owns a hotel in his home. At his work premises, Robert became acquainted with a fellow merchant named Paul Howell, who operated a booth adjacent to his Soon, Robert became acquainted with Paul Howell's younger son, Jerry. Initially, Jerry Howell and his friends scathed and taunted Robert over his overt homosexuality. Although, according to Robert, Jerry Howell later confided in him that he and his friends occasionally earned money as male sex workers. By the early 1980s, Paul Howell had relocated his business to a store close to the intersection of 39th and Main Street. His family had also moved into an apartment above the shop. Robert remained a casual friend of the family, also offering assistance if Jerry encountered any minor scrapes with the law. By the summer of 1984, Jerry Howell had turned 19. So we already, like, can know where this is going. Like, oh, 
It's just so awful. It's like, oh, my God. You can't trust anyone, but you definitely can't trust nobody with your kids. You know what I mean? Like, especially in today's world. Like, you cannot trust nobody with your kids. Fuck that. Fuck that. Berdella is believed to have killed his first victim on July 5th, 1984. His first victim was 19-year-old Jerry Howell. Robert had promised to drive Jerry to attend a dancing contest in Merriam. According to Robert, he gave Jerry both alcohol and Valium, both in his car and at the house, until Jerry became unconscious. He then injected Jerry with a heavy tranquilizer before binding the youth to his bed. Jerry was restrained to Robert's bed for a period of approximately 28 hours. Throughout this period of captivity, Robert repeatedly drugged, tortured, raped, and violated him with foreign objects, repeatedly ignored Jerry's questioning as to why he was being treated in this manner, and is pleased to be freed, before, according to Robert, Jerry either asphyxiated on his own vomit or the combination of the gag and the medicines were too strong for him to be able to catch his breath. That's in quotes, so something that he said specifically, like, Robert would later state that he briefly attempted to perform resuscitation upon Jerry after he had died before dragging the body to the basement. He then suspended Jerry's body above a large cooking pot and made several incisions to Jerry's inner elbows and jugular vein before leaving the body suspended in this position overnight to allow the blood to drain from his corpse. The following day, he dismembered Jerry's body using a chainsaw and boning knives before wrapping the sections in newspaper and trash bags. These bags were later placed inside larger trash bags, which Robert placed outside for a garbage crew to collect and take to a landfill. So it just got like worse. You know what I mean? Like he just like, oh my gosh, like (sighs) that is sick. That's literally sick. Later questioned by officers investigating Jerry's disappearance, Robert claimed to have driven the boy to Miriam as promised and that the two had parted company close to Jerry's intended destination. Robert further claimed that he had not seen him since. As would be the case with all of Robert's murders, he kept a detailed log in which he documented each act of sexual and physical torture inflicted upon his victims. Berdella would recall that like subsequent victims he would hold captive, Jerry had repeatedly pleaded for his ongoing abuse and torture to cease through the period of capture, although Robert would either ignore these pleas, taunt his victim, or threaten him. He would remain adamant to investigators that this would be not for his enjoyment, but what he termed his physical and mental satisfaction. Is that not enjoyment, you fucking weirdo? Like, it's literally, this isn't for your enjoyment, but for your physical and mental satisfaction. Like, that means you're enjoying it, you fucking creep. Like, oh my gosh, it's like past mental illness at this point. Like, you're just a fucking weirdo. You know what I mean? Like, oh my gosh. (sighs) On April 10th, 1985... A former lodger, 20-year-old Robert Sheldon, arrived on Robert's doorstep, asking if he could stay again at his house for a short period of time. According to Robert, although Sheldon was responsible in paying rent, he considered him an inconvenience, 
and although he was not physically attracted to this victim, chose to drug and hold him captive on April 12th when he returned home from work to find Sheldon intoxicated in his house. Robert was adamant he held no firm malice towards Sheldon, but he saw him as an individual upon whom he could express some of the anger and frustration that he had towards other people. Like, ugh. He just thinks of everybody as like a pawn. You know what I mean? That's the problem. Everybody's a pawn to him. He doesn't really care. Like, you're playing a piece in his game. Like, ugh. Sheldon was drugged with sedatives and held captive in the second floor bedroom for three days, enduring forms of torture, such as the swabbing of drain cleaner in his left eye. In- Robert inserted fingers. Robert put needles beneath his fingertips in the binding of his wrist with piano wire with the intention of permanently damaging the nerves in his hands and filling his ears with caulking to reduce his hearing capacity. Three days after Berdella had begun holding Sheldon captive, on April 15th, a workman came to perform some scheduled work on the roof of his home leading Robert to choose to fatally suffocate Sheldon by placing a sack over his head, which he then tightened with a piece of rope. He later dissected Sheldon's body in the third floor bathroom. That following June, Robert found Mark Wallace, whom he vaguely knew because Wallace had previously helped him with yard work. He was hiding in Robert's tool shed to seek shelter from a severe thunderstorm. As had been the case with Robert Sheldon, Robert Burdella invites him inside the house, and noting Wallace's acute state of tenseness and depression, volunteered to inject him with chlorazepine. I probably did. I'm not good at pronouncing medicines. <laughs> with the explanation that this would calm down and relax him, Wallace willingly accepted the offer, and 30 minutes later, Burdella decided to render him captive. Wallace was carried to the second floor bathroom where he endured almost a day of captivity and torture, including the application of alligator clips to his nipples to facilitate electrical shocks to his body. At any point which Wallace began regressing into a state of unconsciousness. According to Robert, one hour after this quote unquote experimenting with hypodermic needles, by inserting them into various muscles upon his victim's back, Mark Wallace died through a combination of the drugs, the gag, and the lack of oxygen. He, noticed, he noted this victim's time of death as being 7 o'clock p.m. on June 23rd. So he's literally, like, keeping, like, a fucking log of it. Like, a psychopath. Like, I was going to say, like, a serial killer. Like, but he is a serial killer. But, like, a literal psychopath. He's like, time of death? Like, he's in the fucking OR. Like, get out of here. On September 26, 1985, Robert answered a phone from an acquaintance named James Ferris, who asked if he could stay at Robert's home for a short period of time. Robert accepted with the specific intention of kidnapping Ferris, whom he arranged to meet at a bar that evening. Despite the brutality to which he had subjected his first three victims, Robert claimed that Ferris was the first victim upon whom he intentionally inflicted torture. 
Oh, so none of that before was torture. He wasn't doing it on purpose, you guys. Like, the cock in the ears, none of it. None of it was intentional. Like, this guy is intentional only. Ugh. He also informed investigators that there were occasions during his final three victims' periods of captivity when he ceased making additions to his abuse logs because he assumed the victim would, quote-unquote, be, not be able to make it much longer. So Robert, he brings Ferris home. He drugs him with crushed tranquilizers that he had concealed in a meal, and then he ties him to the bed before torturing him almost constantly for approximately 27 hours. The torture included repeated administering of 7,700, 7,700, how do you say that? I'm not an electrician. 7,700 volt electrical shocks to the shoulder and testicles for up to five minutes in each instance. And acupuncture via odermic needles to the neck and genitals. Ferris gradually became delirious, but Robert continued his physical and sexual assaults until he noted in his log that Ferris was, quote, unable to sit up more than 10 to 15 seconds. The next entry read, quote, very delayed breathing. And finally, Robert noted that Ferris died with a slang term that he used in his career as a chef, 86, which Robert later explained meant anything from throw it out to stop the project. Todd Stoops was a 23-year-old drug addict and sometimes sex worker who, alongside his wife, had twice lived briefly at Robert's house in 1984. After Stoops and his wife moved out of Robert's house the second time, Robert did not see him again until a chance encounter at the Kansas City's Liberty Memorial Park on June 17, 1986. Robert invited him to his house with an offer of lunch and with an added incentive of sex, as Stoops stated he needed $13 to purchase drugs, which is the equivalent of about $33 today. Robert would later stress to investigators that he had been extremely physically attracted to Stoops, and this victim was held captive for two weeks before he died, with, with him gradually increasing his captive's terror to make him a cooperative sex slave. Robert used electrical shocks through Stoops' closed eyes in an attempt to blind him and injected drain cleaner into his larynx to try to silence his screaming. During the second week of his capture, Stoops asked Robert for a soft drink and sandwich. When Robert refused, Stoops burst into tears. On June 27th, he ruptured Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing bleeding and discharge. Towards the end of Stoops' captivity, he tried to feed his captive ice cream and soup, although Stoops wasn't able to keep anything down. By the final day of his captivity, Stoops was so weak, Robert later stated that he had been unable to breathe in a sitting position. On July 1, 1986, Stoops died. Forensic pathologists later testified that the ruptured anal wall caused septic shock, which proved fatal. Mm. So awful. All these young men, you know, like just terrible being taken advantage of and manipulated. 
In the spring of 1987, Robert became friendly with a 20-year-old man named Larry Wayne Pearson. This casual friendship began when Pearson entered his shop and explained to Robert that as a child, he had an interest in both witchcraft and wizardry. Shortly after, Pearson temporarily lodged with Robert and willingly performed chores around the house as a means of paying rent. According to Robert, he did not initially intend to capture this individual, but formed the plan to do so on June 23rd when, having bailed Pearson out of jail, the young man began jokingly referring to the practice of robbing gay men in Wichita. That evening, Robert ensured Pearson became intoxicated before injecting him with drugs and moving him down to the basement where he bound Pierce's hands above his head, then linked the rope he had used for this purpose to a brick column before injecting Pearson's larynx with drain cleaner. Then he brought an electrical transformer to the basement. According to Robert, Pearson is by far the most cooperative of all six murder victims. On the fifth day of his captivity, um, he basically had endured so much torture, repeated administration of electrical shocks with the transformer. He had broken several of Pearson's hand bones with an iron rod to try and make him submissive. Robert basically decides that Pearson had earned his trust because he had been continuously cooperative in sexual and physical abuse. As a form of reward, Pearson was moved to the second floor where Robert first informing Pearson that if he continues to cooperate, he would not continue to inflict as much pain upon him as he had done so while he had been held captive in the basement. Throughout the latter part of his six weeks of captivity, Pearson tried to train himself to sleep without moving in order that he did not antagonize Robert and thus invite further torture or being returned to the basement. So he's like so worried about being back down there that he's literally training himself not to fucking move. Like, oh my God, it's just an awful situation. After six weeks of captivity, Pearson deeply bit into Robert's penis before screaming he could not continue to be tolerated on this he could not continue to tolerate his ongoing poor treatment. In response, Robert killed Pearson by first bludgeoning him into an unconscious state with a tree limb and then suffocating him with a bag and ligature before driving to the hospital to receive treatment for his wound. So he literally fucking kills him. And then it's like, oh, I mean, how do you explain that? You know what I mean? Like, what in the fuck? How do you go to the hospital? And you're like, oops, like, my penis got bit. Like, what? He bit my penis. Who? Where? Where is he? Pearson's body was later dismembered in the basement and his head was initially stored in a plastic bag inside of Robert's freezer before being buried in the backyard. So at 1 a.m. on March 29, 1988, Robert abducts his last victim, a 22-year-old male sex worker named Christopher Bryson, whom he lured to his house upon the promise of a payment for sex. At Robert's home, Bryson was knocked unconscious with an iron bar, then bound to Robert's bed, where he was subjected to similar methods of abuse and torture endured by previous victims. Although in Bryson's case, Robert repeatedly swabbed his ice with ammonia before exclaiming to him, The only thing you need to think about are you, me, and this house. 
Several days, Robert began to explain to Bryson that he had begun to trust his captive and that although he was willing to discuss aspects of the abuse and torture he was receiving, there would be no negotiations pertaining to his sexual abuse. Robert Robert finished this discussion with a stern warning. I've gotten this far with other people before and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. Like, imagine just, like, oh, my God, like, you complete crazy person. Like, in that situation, you just know, like, oh, my God, like, this man is past crazy. Like, he's fucking past crazy. By the third day of his capture, Bryson had earned sufficient trust from Robert to persuade him to establish a daily schedule of tying his hands in front of him after his sexual abuse rather than above his head into the bed upon the excuse that Robert's doing so was restricting the circulation to his arms. He had also persuaded Robert to leave a television on in the room with the remote control placed between his legs whenever Robert was out of the room. However, he would later state to investigators that he had thought almost constantly about escaping. The following day, he managed to break free of his restraints by burning through them using a book of matches that Robert had inadvertently left in the room and within his reach when he had left the house to go to work. So he basically sees these matches and he's like, oh, fucking game on, grabs them, undoes his restraints. Like, okay, love it. Love it for him. Questioned at the scene by four officers, Bryson initially claimed that he had been hitchhiking when he was abducted by Robert who had kidnapped, raped, and tortured him for four days before he escaped by jumping from a window on the second floor of the property. Furthermore, this individual had kept him bound to a bed on the second floor of the house. Throughout much of that time, he had been held against his will, repeatedly sodomizing him, dragging him, and injecting his throat with drain cleaner to diminish his ability to speak loudly. As Bryson spoke, the officers also noted that in addition to the dog collar and broken foot, Bryson had red, swollen eyes and visible scars and welts across his entire body. Two officers were told to maintain a discreet surveillance of the property as Bryson was driven to the Menorah Medical Center, accompanied by a third officer for treatment as the fourth officer radioed the Kansas City Police Department to request a formal search warrant of the property. So yeah, guys, I think we're going to break this up into two episodes because this is kind of a long case. So that is the first part of Robert Berdella. If you want to tune in for the second part, make sure you stay tuned to the podcast episodes. But yeah, it's a crazy story. Like I saw this and I started reading it and I was like, wow, I can't stop. And I know I've heard this on a podcast before. I just don't remember what it was, you know? So once you start reading the details and they're like fresh in your mind again, you're like, what in the actual fuck? Like, what is this? Like, this is too much almost like, you know, but yeah, we're going to jump more into this next week. Sorry. I mean, I probably messed up a lot with like my punctuation of stuff. So you guys don't have to correct me. I already know. It's hard reading through this stuff, and I don't want to leave out any details. Try, I try to take, like, exactly what the article says, you know? So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this first part of Robert Berdella, the Kansas City Butcher. We're going to finish it on the next case episode. But until then, this is a pretty long episode. I talked a lot in the beginning. <laughs> so I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Make sure to share the podcast with a friend. 
for Christmas. If you want to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. I genuinely read through every one of them. So yeah, if you guys want to do that, I appreciate you. But we're going to drop that other episode this next week. So make sure you stay tuned for that and stay tuned for the next Reddit episode. All right. Love you guys.